Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to the podcast. I have the real pleasure today to talk to the author of Too Big to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections, in then parentheses, and how it can reclaim its conservative roots. The author is Matt Lewis. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's You said too big to fail, I think. It's too oh, dumb I'm sorry. to fail. Welcome back to the podcast. I have the real pleasure today to talk to the author of Too Big to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections, in then parentheses, and how it can reclaim its conservative roots. The author is Matt Lewis. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's you said too big to fail. I think it's too oh, dumb to fail. That's okay. Too dumb to fail. Yeah, I, no, uh, and, I, and you obviously the name harkens to the too big to fail movie and book, and for similar reasons, you got these perverse incentives where uh, you know actors and the, and too big to fail. It was financial institutions in my book. Too dumb to fail. It's politicians and pundits who have perverse incentives. Uh, you know, to do selfish things that collectively hurt everybody else. Right. And and how provocative the name is, I think, is the very reason why I transcribed it incorrectly. It's such a provocative thesis and, and such an interesting book. Um, most of the guests that we have on are sitting in their academic office and, and occasionally get interrupted by a student. This is not the case for you today. I wonder if you could very briefly tell us where you are professionally but more importantly, more importantly, where you are literally today, because it's sort of a significant political day. Oh, it is. So uh, it is primary day in New Hampshire. I am in uh, my hotel room right now in Nashua. Uh, but I was just down in Manchester doing I did three spots today for CNN, um, went to a, a Ted Cruz uh, briefly, went to a Ted Cruz rally in Manchester. Um, and this is where the action is. You know, this is uh this is if you're into politics, this is kind of our Super Bowl uh, after the real Super Bowl. And um, it's been an exciting time for me because my book came out, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And then, uh, you know, with the primaries and then the other thing, of course, who would have thought that Donald, you know, when I started writing my book, I didn't even know that Donald Trump would, you know, would end up being the not well, I almost said nominee, the, the front runner. And probably, uh, as we as we talk, likely the winner in New Hampshire. Uh, so, wow, it's just been kind of a whirlwind since the book came out. Right. And, and this is going to run, you know, I don't know, 10 days from now. So who knows what will yeah. be happening uh, uh, then. But but your book isn't just about the here and now. It's, it's also about history. And, and there's a lot of history in it. Um, let's start at the start of the book um, with a question. Uh, what is the dirty little secret of the conservative movement? that you refer to right at the start of the book. What is this dirty little secret? Well, I think the dirty little secret is that it's gotten dumbed down over the years. And, you know, anybody who watches cable news or listens to uh, Donald Trump speak, I think we'll get a sense of the dumbing down. Um, just last night, as, as we taped this, just last night, Donald Trump 
said a vulgar word uh, on you know at, at a at a huge rally. And MSNBC today actually um, they, they warned everybody first, and they actually said it. So it, it's the dumbing down of politics. I also think it's the coarsening of of our political rhetoric is is part of the story. But what I do in the book is actually establish that, in fact, conservatism began as a very thoughtful intellectual philosophy and that over the years it has gotten dumbed down. Um, And my goal with the book is to, uh, in a way, look backward to restore conservatism as a thoughtful philosophy, but also look forward uh, and and to to have it adapt to the 21st century um, and win over people who don't even know that they're conservatives yet. Now, you highlight the contributions of some of the real luminaries in the conservative world, Burke and Hayek and Friedman. But I wanted you to talk just a little bit about a lesser known conservative, which is which is Russell Kirk. So who was Russell Kirk and what was his contribution to conservatism? And there's actually a book. I would hate to promote somebody else's book, but there is a book out right now <laughs> about mm-hmm. Russell Kirk. Um, and, and I actually uh, had, had I have my own little podcast and I had the, uh, the author on to talk about it. But Russell Kirk was an interesting cat. Uh, he was a, uh, a, a Michigan professor uh, who at a very young age, relatively speaking, wrote this incredibly influential book called The Conservative Mind that became a huge seller. Really surprisingly, because this is a tome. I mean, this book. Is, uh, is is very deep and very intellectual, and it and it looks at all you know. It looks at Edmund Burke, uh, it looks at you know John Quincy Adams and and John, and, and John C. Calhoun, uh, and uh, and even so you know T. S. Eliot even poet. So it's not just political figures; it's it's cultural and, and artistic figures. And this book was really important, and I think primarily because uh, Kirk helped conservatives decide that they were called conservatives um, because there was a real argument. Like, what do we call ourselves? Do we, do we call ourselves old wigs? Uh, there was a real fight over whether or not conservative was the right word. But I think the most important thing was that, that Russell Kirk helped reintroduce a lot of Americans and conservatives to Edmund Burke, who I think is generally thought of as the founder of modern day conservatism. And that was really incredibly important um, because Edmund Burke, uh, who his famous writing was uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And interestingly, much of what uh, Edmund Burke had to say about, you know, the problems of the French Revolution were really almost a template to describe the problems with uh, communism and the Soviet Union. And so in a way, Russell Kirk um, imported the ideas of Edmund Burke, and they were almost as relevant in the 20th century as they had been when Burke wrote them uh, during the French Revolution. Now, this time period you're talking about up through the 1950s and 60s was dominated by um, big ideas and intellectuals. But, But what most people associate with the conservative movement is Ronald Reagan. And I think what most people who don't know a lot about Reagan would, would, would assume or sort of understand that he had some level of hostility towards intellectuals and intellectual and, and ideas. Is this true? Uh, to what extent is, is this part of the, the myth of Reagan? To what extent is it part of the Reagan strategy? Um, 
How do you place Reagan into this story that you're telling about the, the changing role of ideas in the conservative movement? So, you know, one of the unique things about this book, maybe not unique, but somewhat unique things about this book is that I actually am a conservative. And so when I write, a lot of the people who have written these books about the problems of the Republican Party are actually liberals. And so their recipe is uh, for conservatives or for Republicans to fix the movement. Their recipe is to become more liberal. And they have right. to go back. They have to go back 70 or 80 years to find a Republican that they like. And I actually see the Reagan years as kind of the high point where you had a really good marriage between being intellectual uh, and, and, and poetic um, and yet being populist enough to win a majority, uh, a landslide election and two, you know, really two landslide elections. Um, having said that, I think Reagan was a fascinating figure because he really combined a sort of outsider anti-establishment populist thing with um, with a cosmopolitan <laughs> elite thing. And, um, you know, Reagan ran as an outsider, but when he got elected, you know, he went to uh, Kay Graham's house, the, uh, the mm-hmm. doyen of the Washington Post. Um, and, and Reagan, of course, you know, sort of was, was from Dixon, Illinois, uh, and, uh, you know, had toured General Electric factories, and he had that populist side to him. But we got to remember Reagan, you know, Reagan was also a guy who, who, you know, lived in Southern California, had friends who were, you know, movie stars and gays and starlets and cosmic, all sorts of uh, diverse uh, and disparate Americans. And so I think Reagan really combined those things. Um, and Reagan, I think, was actually uh, much more learned, much more intelligent than he got credit for. It turns out he actually intentionally downplayed his intelligence. As George W. Bush later said, he wanted to be, quote, misunderestimated. Reagan mm-hmm. had his own version of that. And he wanted to be seen as the guy clearing brush at the Western White House and the guy who only read Louis L'Amour, uh, you know, cowboy westerns. That really was a facade. Reagan was much more uh, intellectually curious and smart. Um, but he he was so smart that he intentionally uh, cultivated this kind of everyman persona, which I think really served him well politically. But in the book, I argue, it might have had an un- unintended consequence of helping um, reinforce the stereotype that Republicans are the stupid party. Yeah, and it, it, what it what if I'm reading your book right that this what had been a a facade became a real hallmark and, and became a, a real political strategy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of the just the, the map in, in the role of ideas in conservatism and Republican Party politics in general and how the, the southern tilt of the Republican Party explains some of the rise of anti-intellectualism and, and how that, that interacts with the, the thesis of your book. Right. So my theory is that um, that you know, eventually, so, so, so a movement can start out being intellectual and philosophical, but if you want to win elections, you have to be a big tent and you have to build a coalition. And there's a real tension here between having um, a big enough tent uh, to win elections and, and sort of preserving your 
your artistic integrity and you know intellectual honesty. Um, and I, this is like anybody, like if a rock band, you know, goes mainstream and sells out, you know, um, or do you know this? This is sort of a common lament uh, of anybody who who wants to make it big. Um, and so, you know, we've all heard of this Southern strategy um, and and how Republicans wooed Southerners. And, um, you know, some people suggest that that this that there was, uh, you know, racial dog whistles and, and, and all sorts of uh, unseemly and, and pernicious things involved. But really, to me, the relevant part about this mm-hmm. is that when Southerners became, you know, Southerners had been, of course, uh, a big part of the Democratic coalition for years, It's really a wholly owned subsidiary of the Democratic Party. And when they became part of the Republican Party, they brought some good things with them, including the fact that they had numbers and Republicans really started winning national elections. Um, the downside, though, I think one of the downsides was that they brought with them this strain of anti-intellectualism. And I have a chapter on the South and I have a chapter on evangelicals. I actually am an evangelical. Um, and again, I think that these that these groups that joined the Republican coalition, they brought a lot of good things with them and they actually ushered in an era of conservatism. But the downside, I think, is that they brought some uh, some baggage with them, including some anti intellectual, uh, you know, an anti intellectual strain into conservatism that had not been there before. One of the things that you write about in the book is the the role of technology and the, the changing role of check technology and how this relates to much of the story you've just told. So how has technology created the what you refer to as the instant expert and contributed to how we view ideas? It, it seems like both within the sort of conservative uh, uh, parts of the, the country, but also really in a larger way. Tell, tell us about the role of technology. Well, I think that going back in history, every technological innovation has been a double-edged sword. And I, I believe that, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the gun, inventing a gun, right? A, a gun can keep you safe and a gun can uh, kill people and do great harm. Um, whatever it is, it seems like there's, uh, it just expands the, the spectrum of, of good and evil. And um, when it comes to communications technology, it does seem like uh, the downside has always been a dumbing down. So uh, if you go back to, you know, the, the old days of, of the, uh, uh, you know, when you, had, when you had preachers who were writing sermons primarily, mm-hmm. those sermons tended to be more intellectual than the days of, of tent revival meetings uh, where, where preachers were um, getting up and, and swaying people with emotion and rhetoric. But that was probably much more intellectual than the TV preacher um, that we have. And so you, you basically have this, this uh, dumbing down, simplifying of, of communications. Um, again, you know, we, we get to just think of, of the, the distance between Ronald Reagan even saying some of the great speeches he gave where, he, you know, the challenger speech where he slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God this poetry, this hearkening to poetry. And then you have Donald Trump saying uh, some vulgar things, um, how far we've come in the wrong direction. And I think that the other thing too is, uh, you know, if you want to 
and I, by the way, I'm glad to not obsessively talk about just Donald Trump. It's it's refreshing to get to talk about Russell Kirk and Edmund Burke. Mm-hmm. But just to put it like in context with modern times, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, if he had tried 20 years ago to do what he's doing now, I mean, there would have probably been some party bosses and smoke filled back rooms that would have kept him off of primary ballots. Um, again, double edged sword. Not not a great thing to have party bosses, but they they also keep out uh, they keep out uh, some bad actors. If Trump had tried this 20, 25 years ago, he would have been doing it before the age of the rise of really talk radio, uh, before Twitter, before the 24-7 cable news uh, phenomenon. And I just I don't think that Trump could have caught on without 24-7 cable news, the proliferation of talk radio uh, and Twitter. These are all things that I that I like, actually. And, you know, I wouldn't have a job if if in the old days with the gatekeepers and uh, the old media would, you know, I, I came up as a blogger and Twitter has been very good to me. Um, but I just, I think that, that the Trump phenomenon probably doesn't happen uh, in an era where there are gatekeepers, where, where there are adults sort of deciding who gets in um, and, and who doesn't. And uh, I think that's kind of indicative of it. Uh, the, the last thing I would say is I think just the, um, our, our cultural changes, you know, the, the celebritization of politics uh, certainly has impacted it. So really, when you look at what happened to the Republican Party um, and, and why we are where we are, why conservatism is where it is, it's really the culmination of so many factors, including uh, the people who came into the coalition, you know, decades ago, as well as cultural changes in America, um, you know, the anger, the frustration, the, the, the economy. Uh, a backlash against Barack Obama, um, as well as the rise of the, the disintermediation of, of media and the rise of alternative uh, media outlets and social media. I mean, all of these things, it's almost the perfect storm that gets us to where we are today. So so what to do? I, I think, as you noted earlier, you are you are not of the of the camp that suggests um, moderation is simply the solution that that conservatives should just be less conservative and all of the problems of today will go away. You offer a different set of recommendations. And as you say, you write these as a conservative. I wonder if one or two of your recommendations stand out as particularly likely to be taken seriously by those with real power. And I don't know, one or two maybe that that you made recommendations that you um, maybe don't expect for there to be as fertile a a, uh, ground for uh, uh, um, implementing these changes. So so tell us about what what you think could uh, change the status quo. Right. Well, I mean, I go through uh, really the last three chapters of the book um, are sort of summoning conservatives and Republicans to um, to to sort of accept reality, which is the fact that that demographically speaking, um, doubling down on working class, white, older, Southern, rural, married voters is just a bad mathematical strategy. Um, I mean, I'm putting aside the problems that I have with it in terms of policy, but just just if you purely Machiavellian, purely strategically, um, you know, America is becoming more diverse, more more urban, more you know, cosmopolitan. Um, and so right now, I think is really a, a crossroads. I mean, the party of Trump 
is doubling down on the kind of angry working class, white, older, rural voter. Um, not even that conservative, actually. He does very well among Trump does very well among liberal and moderate Republicans mm-hmm. uh, who, who tend to be more secular. That's the interesting thing. He's not he doesn't really appeal to conservatives as, as, as well uh, as he does, um, you know, sort of more moderate or liberal uh, Republicans and even Democrats who, who tend to not have college degrees. Um, that's a very different party. The party of Trump is incredibly different from like the party of Marco Rubio and Paul Ryan. And those those two, I think, are. I don't know what that was. I heard a crazy noise out there. Um, those two, I think, are, are specifically uh, candidates who could appeal to 21st century Americans who might not even know they're conservative yet. And I always tell the story about the type of person that I think um, could be a conservative and doesn't know it yet. And if you think of like a young woman who lives in an urban area, uh, who gets, you know, gets on her smartphone and orders an Uber and then goes on StubHub and orders concert tickets, I mean, that young woman should be a conservative. She's not going to like onerous governmental regulation uh, that wants to keep, keep down companies like Uber. Um, she's entrepreneurial. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that she's going to want to trust the federal government to manage her retirement when she's probably managing her stock portfolio on her phone. And I think she could be a conservative if, in her mind, um, what she associates with conservatism is this optimistic entrepreneurial uh, movement and not a stereotype of a guy who looks like Boss Hogg <laughs> and rides mm-hmm. around with a, a truck with a Confederate flag um, in the back. Uh, in the back of it. So I do think that in, going into the future, it's possible to certainly possible to portray, you know, a Hillary Clinton style of liberalism as really a 20th century command and control top down, you know, uh, old sort of old fashioned uh, model of, of political organize of organizing ourselves politically. And the conservatism could appeal to, you know, to, to millennials, uh, urbanites, um, but again, it really, de- it, it, it really depends on, um, on how it's portrayed and the perceptions. And that's a lot of what the book's about. Yeah. The, again, the correct title of the book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots, published by Hachette Books, 2016. Matt Lewis, thank you so much for your time on this very busy day. Thank you. It was a great conversation, and I appreciate it. Yeah, much appreciated.